turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be in verses 50 through 58. And I will say that this is perhaps one of the uh, most joyful passages of text in the Bible. It is one that is uh, filled with singing. It is filled with victory. It is one that I pray that as we, as you go out from here, that you are encouraged, that you are strengthened, that you are built up, that maybe even you go out rejoicing because I just, as I was going through this, the more I I read this, the more I uh, worked my way through this passage of text, the, the more joyful and the more encouraged and the stronger uh, I felt, the, the, the more secure I felt in the things of the Lord. And so I pray that this day, as we go through this passage of text, that you also will be uh, even a fraction, sense, uh, even a fraction of the encouragement that uh, that the Lord gave to me, and maybe you'll even surpass me, and that would be be awesome because this is truly one of the great chapter fifteen of First Corinthians, maybe one of the great passages in the Bible, and fifty through fifty-eight. Well, it's the culmination, and Paul does a pretty good job of bringing this to an incredible conclusion. So. Let me remind you a little bit of where we've been, and uh, then I'll give you a general idea of where we're going to go today, and then we'll start looking at the text in a little bit of detail. So just a reminder, this is the conclusion of something. This is the conclusion of the Bible's most comprehensive account of the resurrection. If you want to know about the resurrection... 1 Corinthians 15 is the place. It is the place you need to go. It, it details the resurrection um, in, well, in great detail. So it, what we're, where we've been is um, talking about the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the future and subsequent resurrection of His people. And Paul has... He, he began this passage of text dealing with what is the gospel? The gospel is, Paul says, my gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died for a reason. It wasn't simply an example. It wasn't to make us feel good. It wasn't uh, for that. He died for a very specific purpose. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. The entire Bible speaks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins with, here's my gospel, and he puts it in a very uh, simple, uh, condensed package. He doesn't expand on it. Christ died, Christ was buried, he was really dead, and he rose again on the third day. And many people bore witness of that. And then Paul goes on and he talks about the fact, the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that um, because Christ has been raised from the dead, what are some of the implications? And, and Paul deals with some of the negative implications as well as the positive implications. And so he, he starts off with, well, 
Some of you might say that Christ has not been raised from the dead. Well, if Christ has, you might not believe that, that tale. You might not believe the, the 500 witnesses. You might not believe me as an eyewitness. You might not believe Peter as an eyewitness. You might not believe the scriptures that bear witness of these things. But let me tell you, if you don't believe them and Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, these certain implications follow. And, and the main one is that you are still in your sins. And Paul would go on and say, and me and the other apostles are liars. What are you doing listening to us? We haven't told the truth. If Christ, because we're saying that we've seen the risen Christ. Then, so those are kind of the negative implications. But then he goes on, he says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. So now all those things are true. Your sins have been forgiven. We are telling you the truth. You will see your loved ones again. So Paul goes on and he talks about um, that Christ has been raised from the dead. If you don't believe it, here's the, the, the natural trajectory of that unbelief. But Christ has been raised and there is a natural, the natural implications of uh, aligning yourself with that truth. And then... Addressing a very practical question. Well, if the dead are raised, if Jesus is raised from the dead, and we're going to be raised from the dead, what kind of body do we have? And and we talked about that last week. What kind of body are are we going to have? Um, And Paul's answer is, and you can go back and listen to that if you want, but Paul's answer is God is able to fit our body for an eternal, eternal environment. So just as God has made bodies for birds and for fish and for animals and they are fit for the environment in which they live, so God is able to create a body for you fit for eternal life. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. So that's where we've been. Let me give you a little preview then of where we're going to go today. And uh, uh, we'll see how we do with that. Our text actually will indirectly take us to Eden, the Garden of Eden. Because see, God has purchased a people for himself. And that redemption, uh, I think in your notes, in your notes says that redemption began in Eden. And I know some of you are going, wait a second, it, it, started, it began way further back. It started in eternity past. Yes, it did. All right. But in time, that redemption of God's people began in Eden. And it finds its conclusion at the return of Christ. And that's where we're going to go today. We're going to see the big picture. We're going to see from Eden to Christ's return. From God bringing about redemption of his first son, Adam, and his wife, Eve. And working all the way through history to his true son, Jesus, who has brought redemption for us, and that redemption will find its conclusion when Christ returns. So what we're seeing today is the culmination of Christ's work. But this also, Paul concludes this section with maybe one of the finest encouragements, perhaps one of the most significant um, exhortations to the people of God. And so stay with me till the very end. 
um, because his encouragement is, I hope I can do it justice. And he will, and so here we're going to see the work of God from beginning to end. And then at the end, Paul will say, Paul will give, I think, one of the great encouragements in all of Scripture to the people, to you, to me. And I pray that we are able to walk out of here joyful and encouraged by what God has done. So that's the general goal. That's where I, I plan on going. We'll see if I get there. So let's go ahead and follow along with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. This is the word of the living God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Folks, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So I want to begin with uh, Paul highlights a certain future for his people. And and I I want to spend just a little bit of time just dealing with this issue, how Paul says, I tell you, brothers, this should be, um, Sawyer, are we on, we're on three? There we go. Thank you. Um, Brothers. Here we are in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Tell me, when you think of 1 Corinthians and you think of the church in Corinth, some of the things that might come to your mind are, this is a really messed up group of folks. Paul has really spent 14 chapters chastising them. And so, though the Corinthians were mistaken, though they were influenced by pagan culture, Paul calls them brothers. Paul has not been consistently, he does not, he has not consistently praised them. There are places where God, or where Paul has, you know, praised them and given them some accolades, but really, for the most part, Paul has admonished them. He, this is a group of people, the very first part, this is a group of arrogant people who have divided themselves saying, um, we follow one leader and some other people follow another leader, and, but we're the, you know, 
we're a little bit higher than them. We're a little bit better off than them. We're a little bit wiser than them. And then Paul goes in and says, um, you guys are actually praising a man who is living in an illicit relationship with another woman. And it's not so much that that's happening. It's that you guys are celebrating this thing, this immoral relationship. And you guys are rejoicing as a church. So this is something to be celebrated. And then you sue one another. Oh, and then you divide over the Lord's Supper. In fact, it's become a class warfare thing. The the rich get to eat all the good stuff and the poor come and there's nothing left. This is arrogant. And then some of you think you're better off because you have certain spiritual gifts and that you've, you've classified these spiritual gifts and some are for the truly spiritual and some are just for the, you know, kind of normal spiritual and then some are for the... You, you've categorized these things and you've divided yourselves and this is where Paul has been and this is what Paul has addressed. He's not always praised them. He's been sarcastic with them. He's called them fools. But here he calls them brothers. This is, a, I think, just a great reminder that Paul has affirmed his commitment to them by showing them where they're deficient. Let me repeat that. Paul has affirmed his commitment to these people, to this church, by showing them where they were deficient. These were imperfect men, imperfect women, but they were worth fighting for. See, if I think if Paul didn't really like these guys, if he just really wanted to blow them off, he wouldn't have written 1 Corinthians at all. He wouldn't have corrected them at all. He would have just cast them to the, to the side. Maybe we'd read about them in another letter, and like he, he did with some other people, like Hymenaeus, and he's just kind of written them off. But these are men and women that Paul considers they are worth fighting for. They are broken, imperfect, messed up people. But they have been redeemed by Christ, and I'm going to fight for them. And the way I'm going to fight for them is I'm going to write them a letter. And I'm going to show them where they are deficient. His often harsh and sometimes sarcastic tone um, are, are all meant to bring this church to a place of total submission to Christ. But Paul considers them followers of Jesus. Sometimes we end up with two, um, two extremes. We end up with first with hypercritic, being hypercritical. That is, you know, we, we find every little thing, every little detail, and we elevate it to sin, and we make sure that the person who is committing that knows all about it. But then we also commit another extreme, and that is we don't say anything at all. Paul is very faithful, sometimes sarcastic, sometimes harsh, but he's letting them know, brothers, the reason I'm doing this for you is because, number one, you are my brother. You are my sisters. You are in Christ. And I want you to flourish in Christ. I want you to find Him utterly and completely sufficient. That you will not find your satisfaction in your wisdom or in your promiscuity or in your wealth or in your spiritual elevating your spirituality above others. You will not find it there. You will find your sufficiency. You will find, you will find your satisfaction in the sufficiency of Christ. There is no, let's agree to disagree on the matters of faith. 
Paul never lets them off the hook and he never enables their sin. But he also doesn't cast them aside. What, a, what an, a, an amazing balance that Paul finds in this last, second to last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. I tell you this, brothers. Then he goes on, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of, there's been a lot of discussion about that statement, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And is Paul responding to a question that the Corinthians asked? Or is Paul responding to a, um, a, an imaginary uh, questioner. Paul does that a lot, especially in Romans. There's an imaginary questioner, and Paul um, interacts with the, or dialogues with, with an, an individual like that. Um, but Paul basically is saying, listen, it's true. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. People might be saying, listen, Paul, if you're saying we're going to be raised from the dead, that's great. But I just want you to know flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is on board with that. I agree with you 100%. Flesh and blood cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This corruptible body cannot stake claim on the incorruptible. Paul, we're going to get there. He's going to tell us that a radical change needs to take place. See, our present bodies wear out. They break down. If your body has not broken down yet, just wait. It will. Some quicker than others, but they all break down. And they are not eternal. And they are perishable. And, and so the question might say, okay, well, here's the thing. We've been given eternal life, but this body's not eternal. What are you doing about that, Paul? What are we supposed to do with that? This body fails. It's going to go in the ground. But you say we have eternal life. Jesus said we have eternal life. How do we reconcile those two things? Our present bodies are not fit for eternity they will need to undergo a fundamental transformation. And the emphasis is that both the living and the dead will require a change. A radical change needs to take place for this perishable, mortal body to become imperishable and immortal. Something's got to happen. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable I, behold, I tell you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. Sometimes mysteries are seen as negative. Mysteries are seen as something that we need, I don't know, Sherlock Holmes or you know, the Hardy Boys or something like that to come and figure out the facts and wrestle with some, some challenging questions and maybe eventually they come to solve the mystery. But a mystery in the Bible isn't like that. A mystery in the Bible is something that was previously hidden that God has kept revealed by his own sovereign will, but now at this time has made known. So it is something that God has kept revealed that now he has made known. And Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you a mystery, something that God has kept revealed, but now he is making known. Something previously unknown is being revealed. And flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And if our present bodies cannot last for eternity, then what? 
Paul says, well, let me tell you. I'll show you what must take place. And what he says, I'm going to tell you it's mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All of us will experience a change. Look at um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 15 through 18. I think I have it on the screen. There it is. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. I put that in highlights, because, or I, put, I, I emphasize that, because this is, um, I'm telling you a mystery, something that is, has been hidden that is now revealed. So I, I'm telling you this, I'm declaring something to you by a word from the Lord. This is revealed that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. And let me quote verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. First of all, he begins by saying, not all of us are going to die. He says, we won't all sleep. That's a euphemism for we won't all die. Paul has demonstrated previously, and we talked about this quite a bit last week. Paul has demonstrated that death is the necessary prerequisite to resurrection. But now he points to a second path. And it answers an assumed question. The question is, well, if death is a necessary requirement, um, prerequisite to being resurrected, then will every will all Christians have to die before the Lord's coming? In other words, when the Lord show, comes, will Christians all be dead, or will there still be some Christians living? And Paul says, "Yeah, there will still be some Christians living when when the Lord returns." Well, then what about them? What about those who are alive at the Lord's coming? First of all, let me point out, there is a generation of Christians who will not die. I pray that it's this generation. I think every generation has prayed the same thing. But there is a generation who will witness the return of Christ. And they will not experience death as every other generation has. Those Christians who do not experience death, Paul says, they will all be changed. It is an action that will happen to us. We will all be changed. Um, And the first, he says, so the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry. So at the return of Christ, here is this this event. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and at the return of Christ, what will happen? The dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have died... We talked about John, John Wycliffe last week. John Wycliffe, his body is utterly atomized. It probably They burned his bones 700 years ago. Um, but somehow, John Wycliffe, God will raise Wycliffe from the dead. At the voice, at the sound of the trumpet of God, John Wycliffe and all who are dead in Christ will rise up. They will get their, they will receive by grace their resurrected bodies. Then we who are alive, this is the generation who is on earth at the return of Christ. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. We will join those, if you have loved ones who have passed on before you, we will join them and 
uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Brothers, encourage one another with these words. So what about those who are here when the, Lord's co- when the Lord returns? Paul says, oh, everybody's going to get changed. The dead will get changed. John Knox will get, or, I'm sorry, John Wycliffe will get changed. Those who are alive will get changed. We will be given bodies that are fit for eternity. And we will all be changed. And I do want you to note that this is an action that happens to us. We do not do this ourselves. It is something that is done from outside of us. It is something that is a work of God and God alone who is able to do these things. It is God who can reassemble the body of John Wycliffe. And it is God who is able to make you fit for an eternal environment. Note the timing. Paul says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And I love this. And the trumpet will sound. First of all, it's instantaneous. It's, it's, the, the Greek word is literally atomos. So, you see, right, Adam, the smallest, indivisible, well, very, that was probably the tiniest thing they knew of or were, were thinking of. It is the smallest amount of time. It is instantaneous, in the twinkling of an eye, when, at the last trumpet, this, this is the final trumpet, the trumpet that signals the end. And, and I love the certainty the trumpet will sound. And Paul is noting or reminded of John 14.3, and I think, we have, I think I have that up there. Do we have John 14.3? Yep, there it is. These are the words of Jesus. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, where I am, you may be also. Paul, I think, is gleaning from that, that, that idea. He's taking comfort in the words of Christ who states with certainty, listen, if I go away, I will come again. And I will take you to where I am. This you can count on. And Paul then takes that and says, And the moment in the twinkling of the lie at the last trumpet, and that trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I love the certainty. The dead raised imperishable, and, so the dead, those who have gone on before us, raised imperishable, those who are alive at the Lord's coming, will be changed. Something happens to us. Something from outside of us. It is God who is affecting this change. And so, real briefly, let me just review a bit where we are. Paul begins to talk to brothers. These are flawed individuals, imperfect men and women. And he affirms with them, yes, you're right, flesh and blood cannot enter into the eternal realm. Because flesh and blood, our, our, our natural state, it's wearing out. It dies. and you're, But yet somehow we're going to have eternal life. So this... Non-eternal body cannot inherit the eternal life that Christ has promised. So, what's going to happen? A change has to take place. And the change is that 
and I'll talk in detail about the, the change, but we'll all experience the change. We'll experience the change when Christ returns. And there is a generation of people who will be alive at Christ's coming. So you will either die and be buried or however your the disposal of your body will take place. You will, your, your soul, that immaterial part of you, will go and be with Christ immediately. But at the return of Christ, that resurrection body will be given to you. And those who are alive when Christ comes will also then re- be changed and receive their eternal, um, their eternal body. And the timing is that this is instantaneous, is that the last trumpet, it is certain. All right. So that's how Paul starts this final conclusion. I guess that's kind of redundant, isn't it? A final conclusion. Um, So I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then Paul talks about, I'm just going to call it a new suit. Um, We shall all be changed. This mortal will put on immortality. Paul likes to use this, this metaphor of changing clothes. Um, uh, he uses it a lot in Colossians, and so this is just a little plug. By early next year, we'll hopefully get to the book of Colossians. So sometime around February, maybe, of next year, we'll be in the book of Colossians. But Paul likes this, this clothing metaphor, putting off and putting on. And the, he says, the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal will put on immortality. We are presently clothed in the likeness of the earthly, but we will be clothed in the likeness of the heavenly. We will bear the likeness of Christ, this human nature which is corruptible, decaying due to sin, will give way to life and immortality no longer subject to death and decay. This is, we see a cross-reference here in Revelation 21, verse 4, where, um, well, I'll just go back a little bit. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. This human nature, corruptible, decaying due to sin, will give way to life and immortality, no longer subject to death and decay. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. He goes on, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will put on this imperishable. We will put on, or we will have put on us this type of body that our Lord now has. It is one that overcomes death, and death is swallowed up in victory. This comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. This is the great climax of redemptive history. Our greatest fear, death, is not just defeated, it is swallowed up. 
our enemy is swallowed up. And it is a song, I love the song of victory. Oh, death, where death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It is so great a victory that Paul sings. And perhaps some of you notice this, but this is a, this is a song of taunting. This is a mocking refrain. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Bring it on. You've been swallowed up in victory. Paul now um, takes these words, and I, I think he's using them to mock death. You who were so powerful, you who had us in so much fear, you who kept us in so much bondage, where now is your victory? Where is your sting? It's been swallowed up. It has been stripped. Death is not merely disarmed. It is not merely stripped of its power, but rather it is swallowed up. Death is swallowed up. It is no longer able to affect those who have put on the new suit. Victory, it is a victory ordained from before the foundation of the world. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul now is drawing from the book of Hosea, chapter 13, 14. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where there is sin, death can deal a fatal blow. Where there is sin, death can deal a fatal blow. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. And death came to all men, because all men sinned. Death can deal a fatal blow. But here's the thing. Where there is no sin or where sin has been removed, death can only interrupt this earthly life and usher us into eternal life. So if you are in Christ, death can interrupt this life, but it has no victory over you. Death has been defeated by Christ and will no longer be able to... There will come a day where death will not even be able to interrupt the life that we have. Death will be completely eliminated it will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The law makes us aware of sin and it provokes us to violate what God has ordained. Romans chapter, there's a whole bunch in Romans, but Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, perhaps help us a bit here. Where Paul writes, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. The law makes us aware of sin and provokes us to violate what God has ordained. The resurrection does not simply overturn death's destructive forces of decay, but prevails over sin's deadly poison. I like this quote. Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins causes death to lose its ultimacy, because when sin is overcome, death is robbed of its power. When sin is overcome, death is robbed of its power. 
Christ has overcome sin and has therefore overcome death. And you and I, if we are in Christ, will also overcome sin and overcome and death will be robbed of its power. So, Paul says, listen, I, re- I agree with you. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. This, this breaking down body um, isn't fit for eternity, but we will be changed and God will fit us and equip us with a body that is fit for eternity. And it will happen if you're alive when he comes. It'll happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you will join with all of those who have gone before you in death and we will be with Christ forever. And Paul then breaks out and taunts death in this victory song. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You got nothing. Then I love 57, verse 57. Seems appropriate, isn't it? A thanksgiving seems appropriate. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who faced death and it is Jesus who overcame death. Hence, all Christians also overcome. Two things I want to point out. The first thing I want to point out is, let's read that verse again. And here's what I want you to do. Giving you homework. Well, it's not homework. It's in-class assignment. I want you to note your contribution. Okay? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. Not much contribution on our part. Salvation, Jonah says, is of the Lord from beginning to end. This is a work of God. He's the one who raises us. He's the one who, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, changes us. And we thank God who, through Jesus Christ, has done all of this. The victory that we experience is a gift of God. We have not earned it. It is. We have not even chosen it. It is God's victory in which He allows us to share. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. If you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, it is because God, by His Spirit, convicted you and enabled you to respond to His gracious Word. It is a gift of God. And then moving on maybe to something a little bit more practical Thanksgiving is the appropriate response. Paul has just talked about all of this incredible um, truths that God is going to do um, in the future, of what God has done in the past and what he's done in the future, and then he brings it to an end, and he says, thanks be to God. And I'll just use this then as an opportunity maybe to, to help us understand why our church does what our church does, you will notice there is always a thanksgiving in our church service. And you might say, oh, well, you're just all, you guys got this little, you've got this outline that you do and this format that you do and you're unwilling to break from it. Well, we're not unwilling to break from it, but we do think that it follows a biblical order. We have a thanksgiving. 
And why do we give thanks to God? Well, we begin with recognizing that God has invited us into his presence and that once we recognize that God has invited us in his, into his presence and we're in the presence of God and we see our unworthiness and his worthiness and we confess our sins and then we experience the assurance that he has forgiven us of our sins and we see it sealed in the, in the uh, elements of the Lord's Supper, what else can we do but say, but thanks be to God? And Paul has just talked about all of these great things that God has done. And he, and he doesn't quite conclude. He kind of concludes the theological part of this by saying, oh, we need to thank God. Thanks be to God. Paul does this a lot. He, he, he explains these incredible truths. And then he concludes with praise and thanksgiving to all the great things that God has done. And the great things that God has done is that God has gained the victory through Jesus Christ. Jesus faced death and he overcame. And we who are in him have also overcome. And he did it all from beginning to end. How can we not but give thanks to the God who has done all these things on our behalf? In the last verse, in your notes I put an application. I, I titled this an application, probably better titled as an encouragement. One of the things I I noted here is that in verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I just noted, Paul didn't need to put that. Paul just concluded with this incredible uh, discussion about the resurrection of the dead and how he ends with a thanksgiving. He could have gone right on to 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection of the saints. You and I wouldn't have missed a thing. Take verse 58 out. There's no break. There's no weirdness. There's no, like, something's missing here. It fits perfect. But Paul, not only is he a great theologian, but he is an incredible pastor and a man who knows how to encourage the saints. Paul could have just ended. But he says, now, therefore, note the therefore. I think that applies to the entire teaching in, in, verse, in chapter 15, all the way back to chapter 15, verse 1. Note the, I think the therefore, therefore, because of all these things, because Christ died for our sins, because he was buried, because he was resurrected on the third day, because it was visible to 500 people, including me, because your sins have been covered, because you are now in Christ and all of the benefits of Christ now flow to you. And as a result of that, if you are alive at his coming, you will be transformed. But even if not, if you die before his coming, you will be given a body that is imperishable because of that. Therefore, because of all of these things, do we have, because of all of these things, Paul says, first of all, be steadfast. Church, I want to encourage us, be steadfast. The idea here is to be firmly settled in our heart. Colossians Chapter 1, verse 23. Paul writes this. He is now reconciled. 
in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Be steadfast, be firmly settled in your heart. I believe that this is going to take us back to his teaching, but be steady, be unwavering in the gospel, not fickle. Be determined, keep walking the path. There are, there are many things that will cause us to give up. And Paul saying, stay steadfast. Be immovable, church. That is, to be unable to be knocked loose from the moorings that are Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has secured by his death and resurrection. When Paul says, be steadfast, it seems to imply opposition. And here I think there is the, the false teaching about the resurrection, the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. Um, I think I have it. Well, you can look up Second Thessalonians 2, verse 2. But the idea here is keep your balance. Stand strong. Be unshaken. When the rains come down and the floods come up and the winds blow and beat against your house, stand strong. Look at Psalm chapter 112, verse 6 through 8. I have that up on, on the screen here. There it is. I knew I had it. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. Folks, did you get bad news this week? Christ is risen from the dead. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we, we will be joined together with him. He has defeated death. Well, I'm not saying that your news isn't bad. I'm just saying we're not afraid of the bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. There's a lot of things to be fearful of, folks. But as followers of Christ, we need not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Stand strong. Be unshaken. In Ephesians um, chapter... Six, I didn't include this in the notes, but Paul talks about the armor of God. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Be immovable so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Keep your balance. Stand strong. Be immovable. Be unable to be knocked loose from the moorings that are Christ Jesus and the salvation that he has secured by his death and his resurrection. And then Paul goes on. He says, so be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. One commentator noted, he distinguished between work for the Lord and work of the Lord. And I think there is a bit of a difference. Sometimes we get so, get so busy doing things for God. Is that what God has called us to do? 
Much effort has been given to do something big for God. But is that what God has called you to do? Often we think, well, I'm going to do something for God. And usually what we mean is we're going to do something big. I'm going to have a massive platform. I'm going to have a social media account with all kinds of views. I'm going to make a difference for God. And perhaps God has called you to do those things. God has gifted some people very, very well to do just those things. Maybe God has called you to missions and to go live amongst the poor. And maybe God has called you to a global platform. But let me break some news to you. More likely than not, you and me, I don't know, I'll just say me. We're nobodies. In a hundred years, our names will probably not be remembered. I'm getting ready to teach church history in a couple of weeks at the seminary. In church history, um, one of the things I point out is uh, that the people we study are the people who wrote, the people who did big things. But I think if God looked at church history, he would have a different textbook. It would look way different. It would be a whole lot of nobodies, a whole lot of people who didn't write anything, who didn't have great platforms, who didn't, they were just folks who got up every day, loved their wives, loved their husbands, went to work, shared the gospel, lived for Christ, got involved in their church and committed themselves to a local church and encouraged the saints and lived for Christ. They did not compromise. Their name never got written down anywhere. I want to encourage you, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Maybe God has called you to great things. And some people, certainly big things. But God has called us all to great things. So men, if you're married, love your wives. Love them as Christ loved the church. Lay down your life for them. If you are not married, um, live your life in for the glory of Christ. Wives, if you're women, if you're married, love your husband, respect him. Be a good employee. Find a local church and contribute to the needs of the saints. I know we want to do something spectacular. I think that's an American ideal or a Western ideal. When we talk about How did the church grow? When you think about how did the early church grow, how did it go from maybe 120 people around 33 AD and by the end of the first century, a couple hundred people? By the beginning of the fourth century, there were millions of Christians. How did that happen? Who had the social media account? Who got the hits? There weren't a lot of big-name people out there. It happened because there was a merchant, and he came to know Christ, and he traveled over to another city, and he sold his goods, and he told people there about Christ, and he came back home and loved his wife. And they continued to do business, and people saw that they were not swayed by the culture of the day, and they lived for something much greater than what the Roman government said to live for. 
And it grew and it grew and it grew. And even when they were persecuted, they did not back down. So folks, always abounding in the work of the Lord. John 6.28. Let me just add this. John 6.28. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what, what must we be doing? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Do you want to do great things for God? Submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest work of God that you can do. If you are here today and you have never committed yourself to, to follow after Christ, I'm telling you right now, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him on whom God has sent. You want to do great things? Start there. Then finally, Paul goes on and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, your labor is not in vain. What a great encouragement. I know a lot of people who, who are involved in ministry, whether it's lay ministry, teaching Bible studies, greeting people out, front, making bulletins, doing whatever, it's easy to start to think, well, gee, nobody appreciates what I do. If I would never showed up, nobody would ever know. Paul is saying, listen, know this, my, my friends, your work in the Lord is not in vain. All the times you've shared your faith and people looked at you like you were out of it, your work is not in vain. Your love for your neighbor is not in vain. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul writes, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. Your labor is not in vain. As you display Christ to others, as you an employee who faithfully served Christ in the job that God has given you. As a student, and you are doing the best you can do and and representing Christ and and, and going through the the rigors of, of education as you are dealing with the various issues and you are dealing with them faithfully, your labor is not in vain. So I'll conclude with this. I just think that's just an amazing conclusion. The way... Paul concludes this this message on the resurrection. But I'll conclude like this. Folks, salvation begins at Calvary. It is affirmed by the empty tomb. It is realized when the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin and your need for Jesus. And it continues today. The work of Christ in you has not waned one bit. And it will find its fulfillment on the day of Christ's return. We will change in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, this mortal will put on immortality. 
and we will be with him forever. Church, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Father, we thank